Would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Deuteronomy chapter 1? We're in verse 19. We're going to read through verse 33. So Deuteronomy chapter 1. We'll pick up in verse 19. As we're reading, as we're flipping this morning, I want to discuss the issue of fear. Of fear. I'm reminded of my uncle's white Chevy S10 and all of the kids I went to school with because they had a sticker on the back of their vehicles that said, ain't scared. Everybody remember those stickers? I always thought those stickers were a load of baloney. Why? Those same classmates that had that sticker, if they got a pop quiz, they were squirming all in that seat. You take those same students to the dentist, and they're sweating bullets. One of those kids loses their cell phone, and you would think the seventh seal in the book of Revelation had just been unraveled, and their world was coming to an end. They were often scared. And as much as we say that about children, we can also say that about all of us. There are things that we are scared of. Well, Helmus Abrakel says that fear issues forth from love. Our fear tells us something about the condition of our heart. What we're going to read in our passage today is there's a great amount of fear going on. What does it say about Israel? What does it say about us? How does it inform our story? I want to pick that up in our sermon in a sentence. Behind every fear lies unbelief. Behind every fear lies unbelief. Let's pray and we'll get into the passage. Heavenly Father, I do pray this morning as your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, I pray that we both shine a light upon the places we have been. I pray it will shine a light on our heart as it is now. And I pray it will shine a light on the places of which we are going. So Heavenly Father, let your light so shine among us. And let us be those who love the light. And who live as children of the light. This cannot be done without the intervention of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask for this mercy. And the merit and mediation of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, we're in verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, You have come to the hill country of the Amorites which the Lord our God has given us. See, the Lord your God has, given the, has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord the God of your fathers has told you. 
Do not fear, nor be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us, that they may explore the land for us, and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up, and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me. So I took twelve men from you, one from each tribe, and they turned and went up the hill country and came to the valley of Eskel and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord has hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us to the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going to go up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. Then I said to you, Do not be in dread, nor be afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God has carried you, as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. And yet, in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek out a place to pitch your tents, in fire by night and in cloud by day, to show you by what way you should go. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word this morning. Now let me remind us, this is a historical prologue. It's asking the question to Israel as they stand on the borders of the promised land, how did we get here? And the truth of the matter is, we have been here before. The text opens up with their failure to enter into the promised land. How did they go from worshiping God on the mountain to this? How did they go from the book of Leviticus to a book of defeat? We see in the very beginning of our passage that God sends them away from Mount Sinai and he leads them through a great and terrifying wilderness. He guides them with the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. He provides them manna from heaven and water from the rock. God has gotten them through the hardest part of the journey. And now he sets before them a land flowing with milk and honey. With the sure and certain promise that he himself will go before them to guide them and to fight for them. All they had to do was go up into the land. I do not mean that they had to go up and take it like Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail expecting some sort of booby trap. No. 
All they had to do was rest and receive and trust the promises God had made them. And yet Moses operates with a little bit of foresight. He sees a stumbling block before them, and so he says these simple words. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed of them. Why does he give them that encouragement? Fear is the opposite of faith. Terror, the opposite of taking hold. Fear is a simple and yet very powerful emotion. This strong emotion led to a refusal to an outright rebellion. Behind every fear lies unbelief. Therefore, every act of fear will lead to rebellion. Let's begin diagnosing this fear so that we will not fall into the same problem. How do we diagnose fear? Well, I want us to look at two red flags in our passages. The first red flag is their incessant foot dragging. Moses tells them in verse 22, go. And what do they say? Well, let's send some men to look at the land first. Do you sense a reluctance? I'm a little scared of water. I know that sounds crazy from a guy that loves to get in the boat and fish. But we went canoeing and there was a rope swing. Y'all, it took me five minutes to jump off that rope. I just dangled back and forth. I was reluctant because I was scared. We hear this advice given by Israel, let us send men first, and it might seem like worldly good sense is reluctance. They're operating on a truism from Ronald Reagan that says, trust but verify. That is good advice, great advice, wonderful advice if you don't trust someone. What reason do they have to treat God that way? What reason do they have to think He's untrustworthy? They've heard God's voice. They've trembled before His presence. They've witnessed His power as He sent frogs and gnats and darkness and so forth on Egypt. They've experienced firsthand His wisdom, His power, His holiness, His justice, His goodness, His truth. Both in His person and His work, God has displayed Himself as infinitely trustworthy. Now why all the reluctance? Why the unbelief? When I was a younger man, I put a roof on a house. And I was working with someone who was about twice my size, which means he was an average man. And he climbs the top of the ladder to get on the roof, and he's antsy. And he does the old foot test, you know, where he leans his foot and he kind of steps on it. And instead of stepping on the roof, what does he do? Hey, Zach, how about you go up there first? Why? Because I'm expendable. No, because he's scared. 
He's scared. He wanted a second opinion. And we do the same thing. When our doctor makes a major assessment, if we have the smallest doubt in his uh, direction, what do we do? We get a second opinion. Even the majority of our deepest relationships have started because of the second opinion of someone else saying, yes, a good person. You can trust them. In each of them, there is a fear of being hurt and a failure to trust in God's Word. A second opinion might be good with fallen finite men, but we shouldn't need a four and a half star review on Amazon in order for us to trust God. Our sight serves, our sight should not serve as a second opinion for our faith. Our sight should not serve as a second opinion for our faith. We call that foot dragging. But along with the foot dragging, the second red flag is the fault finding. The fault finding. We see it in verse 28, if I can paraphrase. They're too big, they're too tall, their cities are too great, their giants live down there for crying out loud. They looked for every fact possible to justify their fear. Therefore, they go back to their tent and they complain and grumble. God has given us over to their hands. God must, make, must hate us. We should see the irony here. God was giving, them, giving the Amorites into his people's hands because he loved them. But fear caused them to frame the situation in the exact opposite way. Fear functions like a picture frame where it captures in its borders only what it wants us to see. What it captures tells us a tremendous amount about the world in which we have envisioned for ourselves. We are reading on Thursday, Philip and I, a book called Crosstalk. And in the book he uses an illustration of a family that goes on vacation somewhere up north, first mistake. And then, while they're on vacation, a tragic snowstorm comes in that knocks out their power and water for two days. Half the family is making the best of it. They're playing in the snow, they're melting snow for water, they're having a good old time. But the other half is complaining, grumbling, mumbling. They say things like this. This stupid snowstorm is ruining everything. We expected comfort and the ability to relax. We can't wait to escape this nightmare. What does that complaint reveal? What I hear is very similar to what we see in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. God calls them out on it. And what does Adam say? It's that woman you gave me. Whose fault is it? 
God, it's that snowstorm you sent us. You see how their fear, their grumbling and their complaining is framing God in such a negative way. Israel's doing the same. They do not see God as good, wise, and powerful. Their fault-finding flows from their unbelief. But more than them, what do we complain about? What are we grumbling and moaning and groaning about? Our boss? Our job? Our kids? Our grandkids? Our health? Our responsibilities? Those are the things we fear the most. What does it say about our belief in the gospel? Are we seeing a clear picture here? Behind this fault finding is a pure and simple unbelief. They failed to trust God's power that he would deliver them from the Amorites as he did before. Unbelief had blinded him, blinded Israel to what God did in Egypt. In the same way when we complain, unbelief blinds us from the power of God displayed upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Do we not think God is able to handle whatever it is that we complain about? They failed to trust God's wisdom. Unbelief hid from their eyes the way that God had brought them out of Egypt, had guided them through the wilderness, had given them His Word. Day by day, God went out and sought for them a place to pitch their tents. And yet, unbelief blinded them. What about us? Do we trust that God is able to navigate us through our problems? Or do we have to plan and, and scheme our own way? Most of all, they failed to trust God's love. You see that very simple passage where they said, Because God hates us. Let me just be very clear. I do not care what you believe about God's wisdom and God's power because it will mean nothing if you do not believe God is good. We will never pray to God if we do not believe God is good and He has our best intentions in mind. Our fear will frame every promise in the worst possible light. Capturing the challenges, excluding His love, our fear will transform every command into an act of bondage if we do not believe He is good. That's why Moses doesn't speak to that first generation, but he is speaking to them at the borders of the promised land. He's speaking directly with us. We cannot leave off our unbelief until we believe that God is good and has our best intentions in mind. Our young men will not leave off pornography, and our young women will not seek purity 
if they do not believe that God is greater than their immediate fulfillment, that He is good and He has their good in mind, no soul in this room will say with Jesus Christ, I delight to do God's law. None of us will say with John that the law of the Lord is not burdensome. None of us will say with James that the God's law is a perfect law of liberty. If we do not believe that the lawgiver is wise and powerful and good. We will not submit to authority. We will not preserve one another's life. We will not find contentment and joy if we do not believe God is good and has our good in mind. Now how do we address that issue? How do we begin to believe that God is good? Do we close by singing Jesus loves me and that fixes it? Do we read John 3.16 a few times and all of a sudden that makes all these problems go away? Well, if that was the case, Moses would have done it, wouldn't he? If behind every fear is unbelief, we've got to address the issue of unbelief head on. How? Think how very clearly have established that each of us here deals with fear at some level. It's because each of us deals with unbelief at some level. How do we address it? One, we must set God against our fear. This is what Moses does in verse 30. The Lord himself who goes before you will fight for you. Look at your fear. Now look at God. Does your fear seem that scary now? We need that act of comparison. I never think of myself as a small guy until someone says, well, you hold my jacket. And then I hold their jacket up and I go, holy moly. But it's not until I put the two things together that I see the difference. We've got to do the same thing. Unbelief wants to put a frame around what we fear. Faith wants to include God in that same picture. Satan is a terror until he's placed next to God. Then we see him as a groveling worm. Sin looks like a wee good time until we put it next to God's glorious holiness. The wayward child, the aggravating in-laws, the lackadaisical husband, and the million other hardships we endure are but drops in the bucket compared to the wisdom and power and goodness of God. So I ask, what do you fear? And how does it compare to the God in whom you serve? How does it compare to the God who fights for you? Alongside setting our fear, our God against our fear, we must daily set the gospel before our eyes. Transforming God's love to hatred happened because Israel failed to believe the gospel. Did they know it? Yes. 
They had the book of Leviticus for crying out loud. They knew it. They walked through the Red Sea. But they failed to believe it in this moment. That's why in 31 and 33, Moses reminds them that God loves them like a father loves a son. That God has guided them through the great and terrifying wilderness. We've got to move beyond this thinking that we simply hear the gospel once and then poof, that's it. Well, in a moment of fear, Israel needed to hear the gospel. In our moments of fear, we need to hear the gospel. Let me explain it like this. There's a man on YouTube that made a backwards bicycle. So that when you turn left, or you turn left, the wheel went right. And when you turn right, the wheel went left. Sounds easy, shouldn't it? It should take all of, what, five minutes to learn how to ride that bike? It took him months. Why? His brain was wired to ride a bike a particular way. And it took him months to rewire his brain. We think that our approach to God, that we're wired neutral. Wrong. We are wired for unbelief. That is our normal mode of operating. Our first gut response will be just like Israel if we're not daily rewiring ourselves to the gospel. So let that sink in for a minute. Most of us are in pleasant times of life. Every day we begin, we should be beginning with drinking deeply of the gospel. Reading the Bible, praying, reading devotional material. What we are doing in that moment is we're sanctifying our response systems. Where we wiring our brain to fire on gospel cylinders. Now what happens when we're afraid? When we receive a poor health diagnosis. When we are tasked with a new job change that we don't feel qualified for. When we're forced to relieve a relationship because of our godly convictions. What happens then? Our brain is now rewired. And we do as one missionary said, believe in the dark what you have seen in the light. Believe in the dark what you've seen in the light. This is a response of a heart that's been rewired by the gospel. That's functioning according to faith, not according to fear. We've got to move, you know, I'm thinking of a conversation I had with someone recently where they said, I know I'm a Christian. I said a prayer when I was eight. So my friend asked the gentleman, he said, well, when's the last time you've been to church? He said, when I was eight. How is that man going to act in a moment of fear? He's going to cave in a heartbeat. We must... I don't care what you did yesterday. I want to know what we're doing today. Faith is not a past event. When faith is past future, when faith is past, fear is present. 
When faith is past, fear is present. So church, I close and I ask, what do we fear? Rejection? Loss? Discomfort? Of rocking the boat and ourselves being the ones knocked out? The gospel promises to give us far more than our fear threatens to take away. If you're here today and you do not believe in that glorious gospel and you find yourself daily overwhelmed by fear and anxiety, that gospel offer is open to you. In the words of Moses, God has said it before you. You must take it. You must rest and receive in the promise that is offered to you today. If you're a believer, on an almost weekly, if not bi-weekly basis, I hear the words fear, depression, and anxiety. They are all real things in the Christian life. If you find yourself dominated by fear, the way to overcome that fear is not to cave into it, nor to pretend it doesn't exist. The way to overcome that fear is to go to Jesus Christ every day. And by seeing the world in a gospel light, we'll see that our God is greater than our fear. Let us get beyond this unbelief that taints the hearts of even the strongest saints. And in that area of life, let us apply the gospel. Can you pray with me? Heavenly Father, <coughs> we find unbelief still rattles us. Even in those who have been born again, we cry out with Paul, who will deliver us from the body, this body of death? But thanks be to God for His Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for each of us here that you would give us greater views of Jesus Christ. That in every, whatever area it is we find ourselves fearful, that we would find a Savior who not only would correspond to that fear, but would be greater than. That in the light of his salvation, it may, shape, it may, it may uh, cause all the shadows to flee. Father, help us in this way. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.